By any measure, 2019 was a great year at UCI. The campus became the number one choice for California's high school graduates, reflecting our commitment to providing access, support, and opportunity for all students. In August, Money Magazine rated UCI the best college in America, and the Sierra Club Magazine chose UCI as the greenest school in the United States. And in athletics, the Anteater men's basketball team won its first NCAA tournament game ever. To top everything off, UCI kicked off its $2 billion Brilliant Future fundraising campaign, which will pave the way for continued growth in healthcare, research, student achievement, and the arts and humanities. A brilliant future indeed. UCI's most excellent year is the result of a strategic vision put in place by Chancellor Howard Gilman five years ago. On this Year in Review edition of the UCI podcast, Associate Chancellor of Strategic Communications, Rhea Carlson, caught up with Chancellor Gilman last month to get his insights into a brilliant 2019. Well, hello, Chancellor. Hey, Rhea, what's Hi, going on? Great. <laughs> Happy almost Thanksgiving. Thank you. Same to you. You're I very appreciate welcome. it. Of course. Uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. It's um, the least I could do. Okay. <laughs> um, as you were told, this is part of our year in review and it's, for it's, 2019. It's been a good year. It has been a good year. I know. Tell me what you're proudest of. Holy smoke. That's like, you know, which of your kids, kids? do you love? There's so much. It's, a, it's been a heck of a year. a year. You know, we had, you know, the men's basketball tournament. In the NCAA, right? Winning Good. their first conference game. We've got, you know, the faculty, the research that they're doing, historic highs in research. The, the student body that not only do we graduate, that we bring in here, we're so, I mean, are we more proud of our student body than anyone? It's the we, best student body, right? I absolutely 100% agree. In all of higher ed, it's fantastic. So a lot has been happening. Uh, we have fantastic faculty getting international recognition for the work that they do. And but so how do you pick? I guess I guess one of the things I'm most proud of is the uh, the campaign that we just announced. People have been working so hard on this campaign. It's an outgrowth of all of our strategic plans. Students have been helping us with this faculty, leaders, community people. We've tried really hard to create a moment where we can really launch the university forward. And so because of all the hard work and how excited we were about the actual launch, I guess of all of these fantastic things, setting that in motion is is probably one of the big highlights of 2019 for me. Well, I can't agree with you more. It was a lot of fun. Tell our listeners why raising money is important for us, a public institution. Why is it important? You know, we're grateful for all the support that we get from the state, and it allows us, I think, to help educate this fantastic a student body in particular, but the state is still a relatively small portion of everything we do. It's about 7% of our budget, and uh, so we're grateful for it, but we're not going to have the impact that we know we can have in the world, the positive impact, without people of goodwill who believe in our mission and know what we can do without them partnering with us. And what I love about our mission is that regardless of what you think makes the world a better place. It could be education, it could be arts and culture, it could be a sustainable future, it could be health and human well-being. Whatever you think is important for us to improve humanity and make our community better, we can be a great partner. So for us, 
This is a chance to tell all of our existing and potential partners, we're ready to be in conversation with you. You have big dreams about what you think a more brilliant future for our community and the world looks like. We're ready to help out. And when people of goodwill come together with great institutions, the sky's the limit. And so that, that's what we're asking for. We're really looking for an opportunity to work with people to create a more brilliant future for our community and for the world. It's really exciting for us to want to reach out and, and, and embrace the community as well, yeah. isn't it? And I think that's really important. Well, you missed something, and I know it's you're never going to mention it because you're so humble, but it was oh. your fifth anniversary as chancellor this year, too. Oh, my God. It goes by... Just like that. Just like that. It seems like only yesterday. So, you know, look back on the last five years and what are your proudest moments? I remember when you came on board. I was wow. new. I was a newbie too at that time. Right. So we kind of came in together. But um, I could. We've come a long way. Well, you know, the campus. Uh, I started here about six years ago as right. the provost. Uh, and then, boy, before I knew it, uh, suddenly the regents are making me the chancellor. A tremendous honor. W what was true about me coming to here, though, was that the campus was really ready to kind of move forward. And it had been so accomplished over a relatively short period of time. And what's great about an accomplished but young campus is that it still wants to do more, right? Yeah, yeah. And so people were ready to take that next step and sort of mature the campus. So we, we spent uh, um, a year talking with all of our stakeholders about what is the next iteration of what the campus's vision should be. And we created a strategic plan that I think we all got excited about because it was about increasing our impact, increasing yeah. our reputation, bringing better students here, doing more great work uh, in knowledge creation that helps society. And so, and we're still, I think, benefiting from that great plan. We're in this growth mode Right, and so, and everybody likes it when we can imagine how to bring new people in to do even more good things. We wanted to be a first choice school for, and son of a gun, hey Rio, of all California high school graduates who apply to California colleges or universities, which one is the most popular one? You're making me cry. I know, it's nice. Yeah, you see, I, know. I mean, more, uh, you know, so we're a number one choice campus for that, for that group of students. And we have areas where we really want to have an impact. We think that we can still make more transformative impacts in Orange County art and culture. The, the ability of the health enterprise to expand and with a very special model of treating the whole person, not just curing disease, but promoting health and well-being. We're very well positioned to do that. And then to continue to contribute to business development in this community, to the quality of our local schools. We have a strategic plan to increase our impact, affect more lives for the better. And uh, so I, I'm just really excited about how much the community has rallied around this vision of what we are still becoming. And you've done all that, or we've done all that, while also resonating with first generation students and those who are truly in need. And I don't think a lot of our listeners know that you were a first-generation student. Yeah. So I know that you don't <laughs> want to talk about yourself this way, but t tell us a little bit more about the decisions you made when you were entering UCLA or thinking about college. Yeah. Um, and a little bit about your background, which I think can, is, is very relatable to a lot of our students. 
Yeah, so we uh, grew up uh, in the, the San Fernando Valley, North Hollywood. In the late 50s, early 60s, they built a lot of affordable housing, I guess you would call it, which is another way of saying a little nine, bunch of 900-square-foot houses under power lines, right? In the, I in grew the up San in Fern one, too. Yeah, right. it, was, it, uh-huh. it, it was terrific. And those communities were extremely diverse, some diverse communities, some professionals, a lot of working-class families. You know, my dad was a construction worker. He wasn't like a working for a construction company. He was a construction. He would come home, you know, with his hands dirty, and he needed lava soap to clean them up before we would have dinner, which is good. He was a hardworking guy. My mom was a clerk typist at Van Nuys Elementary School. Now, so they didn't know how to advise me on college because neither of them had ever gone, but they they made sure I knew that I didn't have an option, right? So I was I was going to go. But it was a very different environment back then. I mean, when I don't remember agonizing about it the way that I know the poor kids these days and yep. even our kids had yep. to agonize about it. You know, we had, since I had to be a commuter, since we couldn't afford for me to live on campus uh-huh. or go away to college, I had, you know, half of my friends were applying to Cal State Northridge and half were applying to UCLA. And, you know, the friends I liked better were going to UCLA. And I thought, well, I guess I'll go to UCLA. Mostly what I did is I commuted for four years over the Sepulveda Pass, yeah. you know, between the Valley and, and UCLA. And, and so it was different in that we didn't have as much pressure. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you that the exposure to a university was so transformative to me. I mean, I thought I was trying to do a good job as a student in high school, but the classes that you could take and the things that you could study, it, 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 like, it was as if an entire universe opened up. And, you know, at 9 o'clock, maybe you're studying Shakespeare. At 10, it's physics and astronomy. And 11, it's constitutional law. And, uh, and I just fell in love with that world. It really changed my life uh, for the better. And so I understand the impact that going from a relatively sort of, you know, parochial place and imagining what higher education can do for your future and the future of your family and your neighborhood, it, um, it really is, you know, my story and the story of all of my friends who were lucky enough. We all have this sense that we only were able to do it because the people of California created these great public universities, right? So that, so when I had a chance to come back into the University of California six years ago, it was it was like coming home. And you know, if if it's affected you so deeply, then the nice thing is you can be a real believer in the mission. And boy, you know, we're real believers in the mission. And you met your wife there at UCLA. Exactly. I mean, so. she was also I met my wife. Right. So you get you get an education out of it, a career out of it, a family a out family. of it. Yeah, it's a pretty good. It's uh, a pretty, yeah, good, pretty good, deal. good deal. That's right. Well, you mentioned this earlier, but um, you know, we we receive more applications from California freshmen than UCLA or any other UC yeah. this past year. <laughs> And, you know, I just have to compose myself because it gives me chills still saying that. What do you think the difference is? I mean, you know, uh, the when I came to this campus seven and a half years ago, that was not the case. Yeah. So much has changed in a, a relatively short period of time. It has. And I think, you know, it's tough for an up and coming university that doesn't have a football team. Right. <laughs> and that isn't in a big metropolitan city. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult for people to know about you, you know, and, you know, what is an Irvine, you know, for a lot of people, right, they just, right, right. just don't, you know what San Diego right. is, you know what LA is, but right. Irvine isn't as clear. 
But I think, you know, among the things that has happened is that we developed a terrific reputation for people of all background coming here and they're going to be successful. And so when you've spent decades working with Santa Ana and Anaheim school districts and building a reputation that this is a place where everyone can be successful, at some point you're going to get that word of mouth. Um, but it was really when we started getting more national recognition for this work, when, boy, when the New York Times a couple of years ago, you know, asked this very interesting question of America's top colleges or universities, which one is doing the most for the American dream in taking people from low social economic backgrounds and shooting them up to the top? It's really nice that they said years in a row that the number one college or university doing the most for the American dream is UCI. And that came just at a time when people were rethinking, I think, what is the mission of a great university? Is it just prestige or is it excellence for everybody? Right. And, and I think that that recognition came just when people were thinking again about what made a university such as ours worthy of that kind of attention and acclaim? And I think our balance between traditional measures of academic and research excellence on the one hand and making that available to all the people, regardless of background, um, is a tremendous source of pride for the whole campus. I think it's one of the things that this whole campus has been most excited about the last few years. And, and then that starts a national conversation, and I think that's helped bring attention to what we want to be and are within the ecosystem of American higher ed. And now we're number one on money. And as that result, happened this year. Number one. And what was the university that used to be number one on money? Was magazine? it Princeton? It might have been Princeton. So We Pr were the first public to hit right. number one. Princeton had a had a good run, and they're still they're still a good institution. Oh yes, they're, they're <laughs> not fine to, not institution. just a fine institution, but <laughs> but it does say something about how we're thinking about the issue that we're right up there now with Princeton, right? Uh, Forbes, the same sort of thing, uh, rec you know, unique recognition for the distinctive work that we're doing, and then you still get traditional measures like U.S. News, and you're still top ten, you know, within that category, right? Um, but so we're we're uh, we're I think we're fulfilling what the dream was of the founders who created this place, right? Because we were imagined in the late 50s and 60s when there was going to be this big post-war boom of new college students entering uh, the field. And we knew the University of California needed to get bigger to, account, to, to educate the people of California. And, um, and so, you know, we were, we were created right around the time when Lyndon Johnson was signing the Civil Rights right. Act of 1964. And it was a period of sort of excellence, but inclusive excellence, right? Right. Let's make this a bit. The people of a great state deserve the mo the best education they're they want to get, and um, and so I think that a lot of the recognition right now that all of that founding generation would be very proud that things worked out as well as they did. Absolutely. Well, yeah. you've had a you've had a great run. And uh, congratulations on five years. What keeps you up at night as a chancellor? Well, I'm not much of a worrier. I usually oh. I sleep pretty well. Good for you. Um, uh, you. You have to get certain things right. And so if you really want to make sure what, you know, because mostly the campus does well because students on their own are doing fantastic work. The faculty on their own are doing fantastic work. I don't need to tell the faculty what to do and how, for the students to be great students. But there are some things that people are going to rely on us for, right? So if you think 
about, about the well-being, the safety of people on the campus, that we want to make sure that, that we're prepared if things happen because people are going to look to us. So little things like emergency preparedness. Right. It's, we, we think of every possible scenario. We have a fantastic group of people in that shop that, that pay a lot of attention, but we have to make sure that, that, that we're up to it if something happens. So we spend a lot of time on that. The well-being, both physical and mental well-being of our students yeah. remains a big source of, of focus, and there's more and more that, uh, uh, that needs to be done, but we're committed to them. Serving their basic needs is also important. Um, making sure our medical enterprise is serving the people of Orange County is the only academic medical center in this uh, the sixth most populous county in uh, America. So that's a big responsibility. I think right now, though, the thing that uh, we're really spending most of our time on is the success of the campaign. Um, and because this is, I think, a once-in-a-generation opportunity for us, if we get it right with the right partners, yeah. to set up this university and its impact for success for generations to come. So we really want to make sure we take advantage of that opportunity. Well said. I agree. So, you know, you got here because you're a constitutional scholar. Wonderful, distinguished background. You literally wrote the book on this subject, Free Speech on Campus. So what do you think about this environment and how students are thinking about free speech? I know you teach a class as well. Yeah. Um, and there is, a, is there a message there that you would like to tell our listeners about how universities should look at this polarized environment we're in right now? Yeah, uh, it is. It's a really good question. And, um, uh, you know, before I developed a strong point of view about it, I spent a lot of time listening to students. Because one of the things that happens in our culture wars is that something controversial will happen on a campus and a whole lot of people will start denouncing students for having certain views or others without anybody really listening. And, and a lot of the concerns and questions that students have reflect tremendously positive values, right? They, they, they believe in the emotional well-being of themselves and their colleagues. They don't understand uh, why um, we should be casual about very hateful and harassing kinds of speech. And, um, and because, in fact, they grew up in an environment where their high schools celebrated tolerance weeks, where there were anti-bullying campaigns, and those are all very good values. So, so one message is that the questions and issues that students are raised are legitimate questions and issues. And instead of wagging fingers at them, it's much more interesting to engage in conversation with them and also learn their point of view. But it's also the case that I think there is a lack of some amount of civic knowledge that's, that's not really being taught. Um, in the junior high schools and high schools. There's not a lot of literacy about democratic norms, about constitutional principles, and, and that's, again, not the fault of students, right? And so they're coming in with a hypersensitivity to emotional well-being and the harms that speech can produce without any counterbalance of an understanding of constitutional history, the role of speech in advancing the rights of vulnerable populations. And if we could just be a model of improving the conversation with more knowledge, listening to each other a little bit deeper, that would be a big contribution because, you, you know, what we see in the larger political culture is not really all that inspiring. And I think we might be able to be the exemplar for how we talk through these issues. And as we close, look ahead 50 years. I mean, how would you like to be remembered? What do the years ahead look like? 
Well, so I, I think we all collectively right now are in a position to, I think, finish kind of the maturation of the university, right? So that, you know, when we start, when I started six years ago, we had just celebrated our 50th anniversary. Right. And we were still saying things like, we're the number one university under 50 years, right? right? Which is good, but it's like saying I'm the best baseball player in AAA baseball, right? right? right. Okay, so you wanted to, so I think that, but we needed to get bigger and we needed to build out certain areas of the campus in order for us to, I think, reach full maturity, have a more of a research base, focus more of our research efforts on health issues that which we were not paying enough attention to. And I'm hoping that when people look back, they'll see this as a time when we've completed our maturation, but we did it in a way that's uniquely UCI. We weren't copying our way to the top. If we're going to grow out health, it's going to be in a way where we hope we're going to lead the pack and then others will follow us down the road. And if, if we help move the university so that it has a bigger impact and is a model for the rest of the country in bringing all people together, um, to take advantage of the tremendous positive benefits that a university can have. Uh, if we have that impact and finish that work, then I think people are gonna think well of all of us. I agree. Well, with that, thank you. And thank you, Chancellor Howard Gilman, for five wonderful years. And plus one as provost. And until we meet again. Thanks so much, thank Rhea. you. It's been a pleasure. The UCI Podcast is a production of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs at the University of California, Irvine. I'm your host, Tom Bassage. Thanks for listening, and have a wonderful holiday.